Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. This is your way. Love is what you make of it. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Luciani welcoming you to another session of self-coaching where real life emotional struggle whether it's depression anxiety relationship conflict losing weight or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed teaching you to become your own best coach well welcome back and i'm glad to be with you again on this beautiful spring day in the northeast a little chilly I'll take it. Today, I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, something that that we get accused of quite a bit, us psychologists, and that that we invariably teach our patients to blame their parents. True? Not true? Well, mm, let's let's explore it, and then maybe you could come to a conclusion. First of all, we cannot deny that our history has played a part in who we are today. And if you're struggling, of course, you look back and you realize that these struggles have been around a while. Where'd they come from? Well, let's let's go back to your developmental years. Now, keep in mind that insecurity is the fundamental ingredient I call it the primatera from alchemy, the prime substance. It is the basis of, for, at least from my self-coaching paradigm, it is the basis of all our struggles. So we have to understand insecurity and the role it plays. Now, insecurity is an inescapable part of life. So every child growing up faces some degree of insecurity. No one has perfect parents. Everyone suffers from illness, loss, separation, challenges, bullies at school, you name it. So insecurity is part of our constitution. And it's insecurity that sets the stage for later struggle. Now, how does it do that? Well, you see, we, we are not born with claws to protect ourselves or wings to fly away or armor to protect ourselves, but we do have our minds. And this is what has made the human species so productive and resilient over these two million years or so. And when we feel vulnerable, and keep in mind, vulnerability and insecurity are synonymous. When we feel vulnerable, we have to do one thing that we are instinctually equipped to do, and that is to protect ourselves. So we protect ourselves from those things that make us feel vulnerable. How do we do that? Well, vulnerability, insecurity, is a state of feeling out of control. Something threatens us. We are afraid of something. We are worried about something. So it's that that state of vulnerability and feeling out of control that we have to do something about. So with our magnificent brains, we decide to try to compensate for that feeling of vulnerability. Now, the most ubiquitous of all compensatory strategies is worrying. 
So we worry because we're trying to feel less vulnerable. We want to know what's coming around that corner. We we want to know if we're ready and braced and rehearsed, whatever it might be, whether it's a confrontation with the boss, your partner, whether it's uh, the diagnosis you may get next week. But we worry when we feel out of control. And worry gives us a sense that we're doing something. You know, we're in a powerless situation. We're, we're worried about something that's going to take place in the future. We don't worry about the present moment. We worry about things that are going to happen. And typically, we anticipate that these things are going to be negative things. We don't worry about positive things. So we are worried about things in the future because here we are in the present wanting to feel less out of control, less vulnerable. So worry is one of these compensatory mechanisms. And it is certainly the harbinger of anxiety to come and other kind of uh, situations where we are trying to protect ourselves. Depression in itself can be looked at as, as a compensatory defense mechanism. When we get overwhelmed with life, when we feel we can't handle life, life gets too threatening. And then as we start to feel more and more vulnerable, what do we do? Well, we start to pull back. We start to withdraw energy. And we start to shut down. You know, it's like the fuses in a fuse box. If we keep overloading the circuit, eventually the fuse box will blow and, and there'll be a fire. So what you do, of course, is at some point, you shut down some of the fuses, you shut down some of that electric current, and you minimize the input So to avoid a fire, and in our case, to avoid emotional meltdowns. Now, a deep depression, of course, you go further and further into that, that isolation, that depressiveness, that retreat from life. But this is, and I know it sounds kind of weird to think of anxiety and depression as compensatory mechanisms designed to help us feel less vulnerable. Now, how does anxiety make us feel less vulnerable? Well, again, because worry... Worrisome behavior is the cornerstone of anxiety. It helps us feel less vulnerable because we are doing something. We're revving up just the opposite of depression. We're revving up the engines. We're trying to figure out. We're trying to worry. We're trying to anticipate. And you're wringing your hands and what if and what if and what if because you're trying to look ahead and gain some degree of confidence and security in the present, in the moment, vis-a-vis -vis worrying. So back to our developmental years. So we develop compensatory strategies to help us feel less vulnerable. Okay, now that makes sense. But what role do parents play in this? Well, it's a, it's a big role. It's a sizable role. If you have parents that are anxious or depressed, of course, the young child looks at the parents and interprets the world vis-a-vis -vis the parents. Because the child doesn't have that worldly experience. I'm talking a young child, three, four, five years old, six years old. So if the parents are anxious, the parents are depressed, the child makes conclusions about what this whole worldly experience is all about. And 
if some of those conclusions are tainted by the parent's neurotic behavior, then that child's insecurity gets sharpened. It becomes more acute, more intense. So the parental influence can either enhance the child's inherent or environmentally inherent insecurity, or it can more or less minimize it. So I guess another way of saying it is that the more together parents are, let's imagine a parental situation where both parents have been through self-coaching <laughs> and, and both parents are on the top of their game and now they have children. And these parents are relatively uh, aware of the tremendous responsibility it is to bring a child up, to nurture them, to give them uh, roots, as they say, and wings to fly. So for parents that are relatively healthy, of course, the insecurity is going to be relatively modest. By saying that, we might assume that this child grows up with a lower degree of possible neurotic struggle later on. Whereas, let's take a, a um, what I call the clinging vine parent. The parent that forced is a clinging vine situation. Think of a post in the ground. And the post is the parent. And what grows up a post, say, let's say some ivy that grows up the post, and it clings to the post. This is a clinging vine. Now, if the parent fosters dependency in that child, if the parent does everything for that child, protects them, goes to school, you know, this is sometimes called the helicopter parent. I prefer clinging vine because if you take away the post, Symbolically, take away the parent. If that child and that child's dependency is strong, what happens to the vine? Well, it collapses. So the child grows with such dependent need on that parent that the child never fully develops a sense of self, a sense of independence, and forever is looking for another post to cling to. And these people... They make, for example, very dependent partners in a relationship, demanding a lot from their partner, sometimes too much. They can become suffocating, just always looking for that, that post to cling to. And again, this is part of the history that has become conditioned. And that's an important word, conditioning. We are conditioned to develop habits habits of, well, I mentioned before, compensatory habits to make us feel less vulnerable, and habits such as the clinging vine, the dependency, the need to cling to someone, that's another habit. But it is also compensatory in that without an adequate post to cling to, we feel vulnerable. And again, the insecurity begins to rattle about. And in order to feel less vulnerable, we look for a suitable quasi-parent 
post, whatever you want to call it. And we're forever just trying to compensate insecurity. Now, keep in mind, uh, insecurity, this is the historical basis. And 15% of who we are, at least our uh, neurotic tendencies, that 15% is genetic. And anxious children have typically anxious parents. Depressed Depression runs in families, there's no question. But 15% is a modest amount of influence. 85% is environment. So the parental environment, the circumstantial environment, that's the 85%. And that's what either fosters or enhances insecurity or not. Keep in mind that a, a disposition to be predisposed to anxiety, depression, alcoholism, high blood pressure, obesity, a predisposition is not a life sentence. It's just a tendency toward. And for you, if you have such a predisposition, you are more sensitized to certain things and you need to become more vigilant, a bit more vigilant, a bit more conscious. But the overwhelming factor in emotional struggle is the environmental conditioning that has taken place. So are we blaming our parents? Well, yes and no. Um, unless a parent is deranged, destructive, unloving, then it's really not fair, in my estimation, to point a finger and blame a parent. So let's let's relativize the situation. Let's not blame our parents, especially parents that, as we might say, have done their best. Now, speaking of which, many times someone will say, I'll ask them about their childhood, and they'll say, I don't understand. I've had perfect parents, most loving parents in the world. And that's where it gets confusing for a lot of people because, sure, parents can love you in different ways, but they can be anxious themselves, try to uh, take my own case. Uh, my mother, God rest her soul, was a really loving mother, but she was anxious. She felt she needed to maybe over-control me, zip up that jacket, don't walk there, walk slowly, watch where you're going. And her anxiety spilled over. Do I blame her? No, this is who she was. She was doing the best she could. She was a good parent. Now, I have to assume that her life circumstances were such that this was the, the skills that she inherited. And what it did for me is it, it, it did hone my insecurities. And early on, I struggled with my own anxieties. It's one of the reasons I got into psychology. I was really curious about this whole thing of emotional struggle, anxieties. But I could look back, and, and I would have looked back and said to you, I, I, I can't blame my parents. I had a good, I had a great childhood. 
So sometimes that's where we get tripped up because we don't realize that good and loving parents, that's, that's not blaming them for our struggles. It's realizing that they shaped us in a certain way that either enhanced insecurity or diminished it. But sometimes it's very hard to distinguish the two. So it can be very confusing, especially for someone who looks back and says, I had a perfect childhood. Well, perfect in many ways, but you have to incorporate what it was that contributed to the conditioning of insecurity. And that's where a good place to start is that to realize that insecurity is an inescapable part of life. The role your parents played in it, you, you need to ferret that out. And you need to not be afraid to do that. There's a, there's a tendency when we have, when we look back to our loving parents, there's a tendency to want to protect them and not have to feel they did anything wrong. And they didn't do anything wrong. You see, a parent trying to love you in the way that they construe to be protective, correct, in your best interest, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. We don't blame these parents for wanting to do the best they can or could. It's just that how this impacts an individual child is very unique. A sensitive child, uh, a child predisposed to maybe being hypersensitive, you know, might take very little discouragement to become very anxious. It might take just the slightest reprimand to make that child recoil and, and start to feel really out of control and start to worry. What if my parents don't love me? What if they're going to leave me? You know, we don't know the, the impact that these interpretations can have on a young child. But all in all, our history does matter. And we need to not be afraid to see the, the truth. And it's not rocket science. It really isn't. If, if you were brought up in a way that left you feeling vulnerable, you need to explore the, the avenues that that vulnerability came, came to you. But what happens is that those vulnerabilities, as we mentioned, were compensated for and conditioned. So now they become habits of insecurity. Let's talk a little bit about habits, habits of insecurity. Now, habits, by their very nature, are not necessarily conscious. They are reflexive. In fact, I call it the child reflex that causes these emotional struggles because the child reflex was conditioned when you were going through these developmental years. And therefore, since these are reflexive, they just seem to happen to us. We just seem to find ourselves worrying or find ourselves getting depressed or find ourselves being anxious. So we need to shed a light on these tendencies, these habits, and don't feel you need to go back and see the root cause. You know, there is a saying that the truth will set you free. Well, not necessarily. Take a cigarette smoker. If that cigarette smoker goes back and finds out why he or she started smoking, it's not going to do a darn thing for the habit in the present, is it? You've got to address the habits in the present. 
So you may go back to your history and you may find, as I did, that you had a parent who was a bit anxious, who set the stage for your own worrisome feelings of vulnerability. Okay, so what? Does that change the fact that you're anxious today? No, the truth will not set you free, but it is an amplification that's helpful. It can help you to relativize and understand the habit nature of what's ruling you, the insecurity, the underpinning of insecurity that's there. Once you have a clear-cut understanding, it's a bit easier to intercept the inadvertent slips towards worry, doubt, fear, negativity. Once you realize that you have a tendency, a conditioned tendency, then of course, it, it's a little bit easier to take these reflexes when you start feeling that knot in your stomach or the pressure feeling that you get when you start to get tense about something. And it's a little bit more helpful to try to retrieve those reflexes and look at what you're doing in that moment. You're trying to control because you're feeling out of control. Why am I feeling vulnerable? Why am I projecting negativity forward? It's an important point to know. Negativity, pessimism, we, we have this anticipatory feeling things are going to go awry, same as worrying. But that's a choice, a reflexive choice if you are anxious. It just happens, right? Well, it's been conditioned. It happens just below the surface, but we need to retrieve it from below the surface and shed the light of consciousness on it. For example, tomorrow is not going to be a good day. Well, you don't know that. Well, maybe you, you want to fight for the probability of that, but you really can't know about tomorrow. You can't. Tomorrow's the future. The future doesn't exist. The only thing you know about is the present moment. You could make probability statements all you want, but you only know what's going on in this moment. So a neurotic tendency to worry, anticipate, is projecting that negativity forward and saying, I know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to be a good day. Well, you don't know that and you shouldn't be doing that. Pull yourself back and tell yourself, that's my insecurity promoting that tendency. Now take it a bit deeper than that. Why is my insecurity promoting that tendency? And now we get down to the bedrock. Because something just made you feel vulnerable. And the reflex, the knee-jerk reflex, was there to make you do something to feel less vulnerable. So if we're feeling vulnerable, if we don't have the wherewithal to handle life directly, you're going to be susceptible to these reflexes. How do you become less susceptible? Answer, self-trust. And that's the one thing that insecurity has stripped away from you if you struggle. It's that it has eroded self-trust. And the way this happens is that you relied on the conditioned reflexes, the compensatory reflexes of control. Instead of living your life with trust, you started to try to control life. 
you started to try to anticipate life, to worry about life, to fear life. You learned to struggle with self-doubt. So these were all controlling attempts to feel less vulnerable, but what they, they actually wound up doing was to erode your sense of self-trust. Because self-trust cuts through all of that neurosis, and it's the ability to live in the moment without having to project yourself into some future to protect yourself from something that may or may not happen. So self-trust is the vehicle for living your life in the moment, to be present. Without self-trust, you rely on trying to control life. Three tip-offs are doubts, fears, and negatives. When you catch yourself in bed with doubts, fears, or negatives, this should be a tip-off to you. You're indulging the habit of insecurity. You're reinforcing the habit of insecurity. Want to have a life without struggle? Well, a life without struggle is a life where self-trust has replaced compensatory attempts to control life. So you might be saying, well, how the heck does self-trust replace that tendency to worry or to be anxious or to withdraw and protect? How does self-trust do that? Well, self-trust is a willingness to believe that you could handle life as it happens. See, that's being present. With self-trust, you trust your resourcefulness, your resilience. You trust the fact that you have instincts, that you are a survival machine, that you will react and handle life as it occurs. Now, sometimes you have to build that muscle if your self-trust muscle has atrophied, maybe you don't have a whole lot of self-trust, but you need to find that you can build that muscle. Next time you find yourself what-ifing, let it go. See what happens. See if you could tolerate taking that leap of faith and not worrying what's going to happen at the dentist. Just finding out, showing up and seeing what happens. See if your life becomes worse if you refuse to what if, if you refuse to concede to ruminative worry. See if your life gets better or worse. Well, I guarantee you, it will get better as you start to grow in self-trust. It has to, because then you could put down the effort required in trying to control life. You see, life was not meant to be controlled, not over-controlled. I should make a distinction. Some control is good control, right? Uh, if if there's flooding outside and you have to uh, tape up the windows and uh, go to the second floor and not drown, I mean that's good control. It's anticipating and it's it's good stuff. You know, if there's lightning striking and there's a, a tree limb above your house, you know, you might want to get flashlights and everything ready. That's good control. Taking vitamins, wearing a seatbelt. So there's good control, and then there's neurotic control, or bad control. And that's where we, as Mark Twain said, I've worried about many things in my life, most of which have never happened. That's where we anticipate things going wrong. And more importantly, us not being able to handle those things. That's why we compensate. 
We're trying to brace and rehearse and get ready and just to avert those things that may or may not happen. See, that's the neurotic spiral. And that's the spiral you're in when you concede to neurosis. You're forever being driven by reflexive insecurity, that child reflex. And again, I call it the child reflex because basically when you find yourself acting, and put this in quotes, neurotically, listen to just how your thoughts sound as they as they roll through your mind. Oh no, I can't hear this. What am I going to do? You know, the panicky, hysterical thoughts. It sounds a lot childlike, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You find yourself weeping and, and moaning or groaning. It sounds childlike. It's the child reflex because if you go back to what we've been talking about, these were laid down in those early developmental years. They have a child imprint on them. And these things haven't changed. They're there and they come up in moments of crisis, in moments of stress. Because like any knee-jerk reflex, it's a habit that's been fed over time, and it becomes stronger and stronger. You feed it with crumbs of doubt, fear, and negativity. That's why we need to understand the habit nature of what's going on, and you need to understand that to get to self-trust, you have to start neutralizing insecurity habits. If you don't do that, then the habit wins. because if you are inadvertently allowing yourself to worry, to fear, to doubt, if you are inadvertently allowing that, then you are reinforcing. You're not starving the habit. You're not breaking the habit. You're reinforcing. It's like a cigarette smoker again. If you want to stop smoking, you can't have those occasional cigarettes because it just revives the habit. So the more you get in touch with not conceding to knee-jerk reflexive compensatory strategies of worry, doubt, even, and there, there are many expressions of this, withdrawal can be one, hostility, we push people away, things that make us feel back in control when we're feeling vulnerable. So the more you allow these tendencies to go unchecked, the more that you uh, reinforce. I was going to do this podcast today on anger management and temper, um, maybe next time, but same kind of thing. The more you give into that hair trigger loss of, of temper, you know, the more you reinforce the habit of losing your temper. What's underneath temper? Well, again, insecurity. Something in your environment is making you feel out of control, and your go-to controlling strategy is to lose your temper, get violent at times to demand control from the environment, to scare others into giving you it. So it's another compensatory strategy. So when I say it's not rocket science, it's rather simple. Insecurity was there. It's, in a, it's an inescapable part of life. It's more or less depending on your environmental conditions. Your parents were part of that. It's more or less foster or minimize insecurity, but it doesn't matter where it came from. It only matters that you recognize that you've been habituated, and what are you going to do about it? Just like that cigarette smoker. Got to break the habit. You can go back and bemoan the fact that 
you know, your parent was an alcoholic or your parents separated when you were six years old. You can go back to that. And it's true. But what are you going to do about it now? See, now you're feeding the feelings of vulnerability. Self-trust requires work. I mean, I'll be honest with you. You're just you're not going to go from neurotic tendencies to self-trust just by realizing, ah, that's what I need to do. No, you have to practice. You have to practice not reinforcing the doubts, the fears, the negatives. And you have to start enforcing a leap of faith, trusting, living in the present, letting life unfold, trying to handle life as it comes to you. So I wish you well. And just reach me at uh, selfcoachinghelp, one word, at aol.com, or through my website, selfcoaching.net. So visit that website where you could learn more about my self-coaching philosophy and take a look at some of my books there. I'm particularly fond of my latest book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, which is all about what I've been talking about today. And until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, well, it's not an option. By definition, victims are powerless and you are not powerless. So remember, everything's hard until you make it simple. So join me every week. And what do you say we make it simple together? Believe in yourself. Reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender. There is more than it seems. Hold on and fight. Follow your